This is the Made It in Music Podcast, show 111. Welcome to the podcast, where we bring you tools and resources to help you go full time in music and to stay in. The music business is a roller coaster ride, changing faster than any of us can pay attention to. We all need a competitive edge to stay ahead and to stay successful. What's working, what isn't, and what's coming? That's exactly what this show is all about. Back again with Full Circle Music, the Made It in Music podcast. What is up, ladies and gentlemen? This is Seth Mosley, host of the Made It in Music podcast. Absolutely incredible show this week. But before we jump in, I just wanted to say how excited I am to be back with you on another amazing episode. And even more exciting is the forthcoming announcement of our Song Chasers course that I literally just finished recording my parts for this past week. And it's been about a year in the making. I had no idea how difficult when I set out to create this course with my team, how hard something like commercial songwriting actually is to teach. It's one thing to actually do it, yet another to teach it. So I've done my best job for you with my team to distill everything that goes into making a commercial hit. This is transcendent across multiple genres. We've interviewed people in pop, country, rock, top 40, Christian, worship, everything. And these are principles that apply all across it. And what's been really, really unexpected to me is how much I've actually learned in it. I thought I had set out to teach something and I ended up learning an absolute ton. Lots of stuff that I've actually been putting into practice lately. And uh, hopefully you'll hear my songs that I'm a part of getting better and better by the day. So um, I'm passionate about songwriting. I'm passionate about songs and the power of music because I know what they've done for me and what they still do for me every single day. They're they're lifelines for people and uh, they help get us through. So uh, just... Really, really want to honor all the songwriters right now who have been fighting through to see this Music Modernization Act get passed. For for a lot of you guys who are maybe on the periphery of the music industry or some even in the music industry, you may not even be aware of what's been going on, but this has been the biggest piece of legislation passed for songwriters in a long, 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 long time. And it's been long overdue. So we've still got a few senators holding out on the bill as is. And uh, yeah, we're trying to get them to pass it. You can follow Ross Golan and the writer is on Instagram. It's at, and the writer is he's got all the info on which senators you, you need to contact. Really would appreciate you guys doing your best reaching out. We want to be advocates for the entire music community. And this is huge for all of us. So please don't be silent in it. Uh, write message, email a Senator and let them know where you stand and that you stand with songwriters and getting this thing passed as is. Thankfully, we saw CSEC and Blackstone come around. There was a bit of an uproar for a few weeks, but they've decided to side with the songwriters. Really, really good move at the end of the day because it all starts with the songs. You don't have the songs, you don't really have anything in the music business. So, um, yeah, support the bill, MMA, and the writer is. Follow him for all the info. And before we jump in, Jesse Frazier, this is an absolutely incredible episode. I don't want to take up too much of your time, but I do want to say one of the most incredible things that stood out to me about this conversation was that you can fail 90% of the time 
and still win. Stay tuned to hear what he meant by that. We're going to hear how a DJ turns country music producer hit maker and music publisher as well. So Jesse Frazier over at his studio. Let's check it out. Jesse Frazier, we're here at Rock Nation slash Rhythm House Studios. Thanks for being here on the Made It in Music podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I, I love your work. And um, we were just talking before, one of our mutual favorite podcasts and the writer is by Ross Golan. Can you share with me just what you found encouraging about that, even before we jump into it? Because I think that was so, like that would speak to a lot of people who listen to this. Like, um, about we, that we were having a discussion before about I kind of avoided it. Uh, I'm buddies with Joe and, and Ross and I love them to death, but I just sort of avoided the podcast just because I felt like in my free time, I want to listen to either serial or music or something non, you know, industry related. It's kind of like watching a TV show about the music industry. So I just sort of just avoided it, but my wife and I were driving back from 30A and she's like, I, really, I want to listen to this. So we just were sort of marathoning it and I actually found it, extremely therapeutic. And it was interesting because, you know, Ross based it on that first hour of a co-write that the writers kind of get together and discuss what's going on, just have fellowship and vent and you gossip, whatever it is that's happening. Um, and it was interesting listening to heroes of mine and, and friends of mine and, and the struggles that they go through in this industry. You know, we it's it's a weird business because... We all feel super blessed to be doing this every day. And um, I think that we're told by society or family members or friends that, oh my gosh, you have the dream job. And we do. But we feel guilty for being stressed out, I think, because of that at times. And it is a strange world, especially when you're doing this for your career and you have a family. And the pressures on, you know, if I'm a normal salesman, if I sell a product, this is how much co comes in the door. Well, if I write a song and it fortunately gets cut tomorrow, I have no idea what to project. If it becomes a single, you know, that could make an incredible year six months from now starting to see the money. Um, or it could be an album cut and, and not do much anymore. So it's a very strange world of unknown. And I think that adds to a lot of pressure for the creators, spe you know, specifically the non-single ones with families that that have other people kind of relying on them. Um, and one, we were talking about one little aspect of the podcast that I, I kind of took with me is they were saying, if you write every single day, most of us do, you know, and you had, if you wrote one hit per month, so that's 12 hit singles a year, you would be the greatest songwriter, songwriter of the year in any genre, any PRO every single year if you had 12 singles a year. And none of us do that. That even at 12 singles a year, you still would be failing 29, 30 times a month. And like I said, none of us are even hitting 12 singles a year. So that number, for some reason, I thought that was comforting to me going, oh my gosh, we fail more often than we succeed in this business. And I think we just have to be okay with that. The fun thing is we don't ever know. And the terrible thing is we don't ever know when it's going to be that day. So you just kind of have to show up. I mean, yeah. I think that that's a good little segue into this. So good, it's man. It's the grind. So let's back up. And I want to talk about your what your grind looks like now. But let's let's back way up, Jesse Frazier, a long time ago. What was your first dollar that you ever made in the business? 
my first actual dollar earned in the music business was probably um, playing in a duo at Michigan State. I was in an acoustic duo with a guy named Joe Nelson. Just me and him just doing acoustic covers at a brewery. Um, that, you know, between that and maybe some DJ gigs was probably the earliest dollar earned professionally. Yeah. Not just like, you know, high school shows. Were you writing songs at that time or was it kind of just... Yeah, I actually was. Um and recording a little bit. I had a Roland, I think it was called an 880 or something. It was like a hardware, basically a digitized had like eight track. faders on it. Yes. Yeah, I had this like the same exact thing. Yep. Yeah. I kind of became a little pro at that thing. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, just dorm room writing and, yeah. and uh, trying to make acoustic pop music yeah. at the time. <laughs> so what about the whole EDM DJ? So I know that's like... Those, those seem like two polar opposite worlds. Yeah. Like how, how did you get into that? A buddy of mine had some decks and I just kind of became fascinated by it. And uh, Daft Punk, I think it was either Discovery or Homework. I can't remember which Daft Punk record. I just was so, I mean, I was, I grew up loving hip hop culture and, and I was a child in the 90s. So you know, 94, 96, hip-hop, I'm a Tupac junkie. But I had always loved dance music and some of the early guys like the Paul Oakenfold and, you know, trance heroes, basically, Tiesto or wherever else. So I kind of always just loved that world. And then I ended up DJing more and getting into that that scene and kind of creating a little bit, you know, track-wise, production-wise. And I would take like MP3s and... um roll off the low end to do my own remixes, yeah. which is actually, it's funny because that led to, I'm really comfortable using samples and manipulating samples nowadays. Um, and I, I, you know, one thing that really helped me out in doing that is just making your own remixes from MP3s and going, okay, I need to, I want to use this part, but that's got a something in it because I don't have the stems of this, you know? Yeah. So there was a, a blog chart called Hype Machine that I would just do these remixes of like Smooth Criminal or whatever, Coldplay songs, whatever it was at the time. And as soon as something would drop, I would I would take the MP3 and try to do a remix. And then I would go through the list of Hype Machine bloggers and just email them. I'd make a graphic for it and then email them the remix and try to get charted. And what, what did you have like a DJ name at the time? Telemetry. So yeah, I mean, same, same, I, same thing. Yeah. It's, it's one of those things where when you're a, where you're young, you just kind of think of these stupid band names and you don't really expect, you know, people to say Matchbox 20 or Telemetry. Not that Telemetry is at that level, but I didn't really expect um, it to be something that I, I would ever use uh, on anything. But cut to many years later, I was um, fortunate enough to DJ some Cash Money Records parties. And um, I remember Lil Wayne, it was loud and he was on stage and had a cigar in his hand and he was asking me what my DJ name was and he asked me about four times and then he just said, let's hear it for the DJ. <laughs> Couldn't understand what I was saying. So, it's a great you know, story. All those young DJs out there, make sure you think about your DJ name think and make sure it's easy name. to pronounce. <laughs> Still got time to change it. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Not that you have tons of time to DJ yeah, on exactly. the side right now. Um, that's, that's, I mean, that's a fascinating strategy though, that you were just going through and emailing blogger, 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 blogger. Yeah. Did one of those end up becoming your big break or what was the Not really. I mean, I got some attention from it. You know, it was more just like pat on the back. I had a smooth criminal remix that reached number one on Hype Machine and, 
at the time, if I would have been, I was so kind of really fascinated with the actual industry side. I had just kind of started to discover what publishing was and curious about being a songwriter. So you kind of have a choice. Like I'm either going to go the, the, the Zed or the Calvin route and, and be an artist DJ, or I was going to pursue the, the writer business side. And, um, you know, so I really didn't ever continue to work that artist DJ side as much just because the industry side sort of took off for me, you know, and I fell in love with publishing here. I'm from Detroit. I moved to Nashville about 17 years ago. And right away, I started interning at a small publishing company and started working my way up from a tape copy room. And I didn't listen to any country music, um, but I was, I respected the writers and I respected the genre and um, kind of put writing to the side, just kind of was intimidated by it. Would DJ on the side. I was doing 10 to 15, 20 fly dates a, a year doing that and just doing, never really as an artist DJ. I always just was busy as, uh, I was working with these event planners. So I would do these random like parties and, and like I did Alyssa Milano's wedding and then I would go do cash money Grammy parties and Drake birthdays or, or um, Kim Zosiak for Housewives of Atlanta's wedding and <laughs> just like kind of odd things, but it took me all around the world. So I was in Mexico for New Year's and wow. Atlantis for uh, 4th of July and just always traveling and we would just turn them into to vacations. Yeah. So we being just like, like family thing? Me or? and Stevie, yeah. I mean, yeah, we would yeah. just kind of go see things and, and um, you know, while that was happening, my publishing career was sort of blossoming. So I worked my way up the ranks. And the whole time, I really wasn't really focusing on being a songwriter. Well, a few things sort of started to happen. The genre changed. Um, younger, country specifically? Country specifically. The genre was changing where you had people like you and I who were, grew up influenced by a lot of different things were becoming country artists. People were moving to town. Um, Megan Trainer moved here from Nantucket. She was like 17. And Shay Mooney was signed to T-Pain at the time. He's in a group called Dan and Shay now. But prior to that, he was signed to T-Pain as an R&B artist out of Atlanta. He moved here. My wife introduced me to Chris Stapleton, who was sort of in a frustrated place of um, signed to a deal, but nothing was really clicking and um, nothing was happening yet. So Chris and I would get together at, in the evenings um, from the encouragement of both of our wives at the time who were friends and said, you guys should just kind of fool around and try some stuff together in the studio. So we'd get together and write pop and Motown and soul influence stuff. Um, Florida Georgia Line asked me to come out and DJ for them on a, a Nelly run that they were doing in baseball stadiums. And during that tour... Um, we, we, I kind of said, look, I'll, I'll go do this. Do you guys think you would write with me at some point during this tour? And they were kind of done with their record. So they were like, sure, whatever. They didn't know who I was, but we ended up writing, uh, my first number one out there called Sundays. Wow. And so that was happening. And then a, a song that me and Stapleton wrote, just fooling around. We thought maybe this could be a cool Bruno Mars pitch and didn't know anything going on. Just, just we're writing, like I said, pop soul. Thomas Rhett heard the song called Crash and Burn and that kind of led to my relationship with Thomas. And then 
Megan and I and Shay wrote a song that Rascal Flatts cut. Um, somewhere in that mix, Carrie Barlow, one of my writers that was at Major Bob, introduced me to Toby Mack, and he took a chance on me and 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 was and cut some sides. Um, Hot Shell Array was in town, and they were doing some things. So all of this stuff started to bubble up. But the funniest thing to me is that um, basically writing pop songs and DJing led to me being a country songwriter. Yeah, that's that's amazing. So I want to go back to just that moment of going out with Florida Georgia Line to DJ. What was that conversation like? Of Because you obviously got to put yourself out there. It's like, hey, I'd, I'd like to write with you. Yeah. I mean, how, how did that go? Like, I was in Seth England's office. Seth and I kind of came up together in the ranks. We're all you know, we're all interns together and then worked our way up. And obviously he's got an amazing career now and what an awesome little empire. And, um, but I remember sitting in his office and he's like, man, I really want you to do this. I think it'd be awesome. And I was like, man, I just don't know if I really want to do like DJing for a country tour. You know, I love the guys and I love it. I just don't know if I want to like get out there and DJ that kind of a scene. And I said, do you think that if I paid to have, my own bus one weekend because I would just ride like the crew crew bus or video bus or whatever when I was out there normally. But I said, if I paid to have my own bus one weekend, do you think that the boys would try riding with me? He's like, yeah, I could make that work. And we, I waited to the very last weekend and we, we got a bus and the first day pulling out of Nashville, middle of the night, 4.30 AM, we wake up and we're on the side of the road broke down. And I remember... Sarah Buxton was out with us and I brought Sarah and Carrie Barlow with me. And I thought, because at the very least, we could write even if the boys were not in the mood. I remember waking up at 4.30 a.m. and when you're in a bus on an expressway and cars are flying by, you just sort of feel the bus waving, but you know you're not moving. It's a bad, (laughs) bad situation. So um, I just remember thinking, oh my gosh, I'm just pissing away five, six thousand dollars. It's about what a bus costs for an entire run. Because yeah. gas and fuel and you're putting the, the driver, driver up in hotels. And, yeah. and so I just was like, this is a huge mistake. We didn't get to the venue until like three or four o'clock that day. So the whole morning of writing was shot, you know, and I had to go DJ because we were doing these tailgate parties before the show. So mm-hmm. I'm just thinking this is a, just a wash. And, you know, the next day we wake up, we finally get to the venue on time. And, you know, it's like 10 a.m. And we're like, okay, um, Sarah, do you have Tyler or Brian's phone number? Because, <laughs> like, I knew the guys cordially, like, yeah. out there on the tour, but we weren't buds or anything. And um, Sarah's like, okay, I'll, I'll text them and see if they're in the mood. And basically it was just like, hey, we're going to write if you guys want to. And, I think Seth probably had reached out to him and said, hey, swing by the bus and just, you know, because I remember when Tyler and Brian, I'm like Tyler even kind of came on the first time we wrote and was like, you know, I'm going to go for a Harley ride. We're in this gorgeous countryside. It was the middle of the summer. So we can write for a little bit. And they had made some comments like we've already cut 15 sides for this album. They were done, yeah. you know. So that was sort of just a courtesy. And then, uh, you know, the rest was sort of just, we ended up getting two cuts on the record from two days of writing. So, you know, you just never really know. I think the moral of that story, in fact, the song that we, the other song we wrote, that was just an album cut, 
I thought that that was the smash. Mm. And I thought Sundays, in my head, I'm thinking, oh my God, this is, this is about, I mean, it was fun that we wrote it, but um, as a, the business mind in my head was going, this is about just getting high and, you know, this yeah. is never going to be a single. Yeah. Sure enough, three weeks later, we get a phone call, you know? So um, you don't know. It's the point. No one knows. This entire business, I don't care if you're Clive Davis, I don't care if you're, you know, Scooter Braun, Jesse Frazier, Seth Mosley, Ashley Gorley, Ryan Tedder. No one truly knows. We know what we like, and you maybe get a little bit of a track record. And that means the track record basically means that your gut seems to be commercially minded, right? What you do naturally seems to translate to someone else, a consumer. But none of us know. As soon as you think you do based on precedent, you're typically wrong. And that's, I guess that's the great part about the music industry. Man, what a story though. I, I, I just think of so many people like wondering, how do I get in these writing rooms? I mean, you went out and chartered a bus. Didn't, <laughs> it sounded like you didn't even know if that was, if it was going to pan out or not. Like it was no, just like, I mean, maybe we'll get to. No, for sure. Because that's not going to guarantee anything specifically that late in the game. Yeah. And I didn't have enough of a track record. The only track record I had was as, as a DJ. He could go, hey, he's DJed for, at the time, it was Drake, Little Wayne, Nikki, and all these people that were at Cash Money. So that was a cool little resume as a DJ. Yeah. So, yeah. But as a songwriter. Nothing. So you had had this whole other career in, in publishing at Major Bob, and I'd love to talk a little bit about that. Sure. Because I'm sure there's just an absolute ton of stuff that you learned. Was that a strategy that you had seen work before or what made you even think to go, hey, let's rent a bus and bring out some friends and do, and do this thing? No, I mean, as, a, as an independent publisher, you do learn a little bit of a, of a guerrilla warfare mentality that you're, you're typically slower to get information at a small publishing company, um, but you were constantly sort of working the rumor mill of going, oh, hey, uh, Julia Michaels is coming to town or Benny Blanco's in town doing this or, um, hey, they're listening for Beyonce things over at Sony Publishing. I'm going to see if I can kind of weasel my way into that. And, you know, I always wanted to be someone that kept their word and and have integrity. So I never wanted to be a used car salesman as a song plugger or a, as a writer. But if I believed in something and believed that if I could get in the room and deliver, um, then at least I'd have a shot at it, you know? And I, I always heard people say that kind of stuff. Like, oh, if I just could get in this room, I'd have a shot. And you always think that that sounds so confident. And it's kind of not true. Like, I, I was super, t- to this day, I'll go write a song in a half hour here and I'm, I'll be worried about it. Mm. And I'll be with people I know or people I don't know. It doesn't matter. And, you know, I'm fortunate enough to have songs on the charts right now. And yet still... I'm sort of a nervous wreck every time we write. Just because you want it to go well. You want it to be enjoyable. We've all been in those fortunately few writes where you're like, oh my God, get me out of here. This is hitting a wall. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think you do learn in a small company, the toilet's not working. Someone's got to fix it. You do work that, you know, what pays the bills and what doesn't pay the bills, you know? Um we need to get activity. We need songs out. We need writers that are being sought after, you know? So all those things kind of go into play when you're like, okay, if you can work an angle, work an angle. Um, as long as you can kind of keep your integrity while you're doing it, then 
it's a sales business. Yeah. So gets, how did you learn that side of the skill, like that skill set? Because a lot of people, when they get into music, do not think of the word sales as being associated with it. But I'm actually really glad you hit on that because that's everything. Oh, it's all it is. Like, how this did is, you, how did you learn that? I, I really think just coming up through the ranks of a, a small publishing company, like I said, where you're aware of the budget, you learn, oh, wow, a platinum record only makes that much money or this single made that much money. And also sitting in rooms with other song pluggers and you thinking you have some badass material and then you sit in a plugger meeting and, and they smoke you. And then you start to go, wow, this is, there's a lot of amazing songs being written every single day in just this town, let alone the world, which also makes you down the road, makes you frustrated when people put out shitty albums, <laughs> your favorite <laughs> artists, and you're like, what? How is that possible? How is it, yeah, I'm listening to amazing songs yeah. all day, every day. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. But I think, you know, once you start to realize, okay, everyone's pretty good and there's a few that are great on a regular basis, then you really have to start hustling. Yeah. You know, I think it's like any line of work. I mean, if we were stockbrokers, we'd be doing the same thing. You know, everyone has the same information yeah. um, or has the ability to gather the same information. Somehow we have to get ahead, you know? So I always felt like my writers, wherever I was, I wanted them to feel like they had a ton of attention. We weren't over signing. It wasn't like a, you know, huge stable of writers but also i want them to know that i, I get black and blue over their songs i would get you know beat up told that they were terrible or this that or the other and just kind of break down the walls trying to get a song heard mm -hmm. and some songs i've had cut whether it was a song player or a writer the artist passed on the first time around because they're just humans i mean sometimes you hear a song and doesn't react and then the second time you hear it next thing you know it's a single so once you've seen that happen and you realize, wow, that what it takes to to do this, um, you realize that the majority of this business, specific when I say this business, right now I'm talking specifically about writing and publishing, the majority happens outside of the writing room. The I'm not gonna say the easy part because it's not easy to write songs and there's a lot of stresses that come with it, but you know. What, not every song just finds its way. Yeah, it all begins with the song where you say that a lot in this town. And that just, it, that means what it means. It begins with yeah. the song. The amount that has to go down to get a song cut and whether it's production or, you know, concerns an artist has, is this the next single? Yeah. Is this going to help my career, hurt my career? Is this a risk? There's just so much that goes into it. And we can only control so much, so you might as well control what you control. Yeah. So at some point, your success with FGL and Toby Mac and Rascal Flatts and Thomas Rhett turned into you being able to start your own thing. What What was the transition from you leaving Major Bob as because you were doing creative over there, right? Was that your yeah? Role I worked there? up to the VP role over there, and I was proud of the spot. We had helped kind of rebrand it. Uh, Major Bob was sort of famous for um, having Garth Brooks, and and um, and then there was another uh, artist, uh, writer over there named Neil Thrasher that was big for. Uh, he's still an amazing songwriter. So, but it, we had brought in this kind of new crew that had 
topped the charts a few times and and we had rebranded the company, everything from logos to just the vibe in general. So I was proud of that. And my writing career was really just starting to blossom. And But my professional career had sort of hit the ceiling of like, look, it was sort of a family company. Um, equity was never discussed. And I just feel like once you've tapped out in any situation, um, if you're not growing, you know, if, if you're no longer nervous, if you're no longer rattled, something's wrong. That's sometimes when bitterness sets in. I think anyone that you know that's jaded about the business or any business, whether that's watching your parents get disenchanted with their careers when you're kids or, you know, us. Once you start standing still, bitterness, jadedness, and especially for a writer and anyone in the music business, jaded, being jaded really blinds you to young talent, new sounds. I mean, we've all been around writers that are just over it and, you know, hate on everything. And man, that's the moment. That's just like the death nail. So I always feel like if you're really comfortable and you haven't been scared in a little while, whether you're a writer or a business person, you might need to do a little bit of a gut check on, am I doing what I should be doing? So did you have a moment in time that that happened for you? And you're like, man, I got to go start my own thing now. I had about a year and a half. I had been approached several times for about, you know, fortunately, you know, I had made a little bit of a name for myself, I think as a reputation of being a decent business person. Um, so there was a, a few people and, and um, you know, some early believers in me on, on production stuff. Guys like Jim Catino gave me like some early production shots. But um, Scott Borchetta was, was a guy that kind of came, wanting me to come work for him several times. And we couldn't, I could never really find the combination of how it would work. But just the fact that he was kind of persistent was a huge confidence builder. I mean, I have so much respect to him for him even till uh, this day, but um, just him sort of reaching out and being pretty persistent about it. I was like, man, well, maybe I do have a greater value than I kind of thought, you yeah. know? So those kind of things start going, well, what if, you know? And then it was just a matter of, it's challenging. Sometimes, you know, you you're when you're in a spot of, well, what do you want to do? And you're in a spot where it's sort of a lot of freedom. That's a hard question. You're like, well... I kind of want to do what I'm doing, but just bigger and, and different opportunities. And one thing I really wanted was partners that I could reach out to and pick up the phone. And any given moment, you know, like Thursday and Friday, for instance, here, we we're having a, a sync day where the four of us are just hunkered down and focusing on providing some sync stuff for our, our chapel partners. And um, at any given moment, I can reach up and pick up the phone, call Jay Brown and Tamara Rock and send a song there. I can call, you know, Katie Walliver at Chapel and, and reach out and send a song there and call Ben Vaughn or, or BJ's team at Chapel locally and talk to them. Um, I, I love having partners now as far as like, you know, no one's going to work as hard as we do. No one's going to believe in us as, as much as we do as far as work ethic. So you can't rely on partners, but I like having partners. And I think that's one thing I learned through some different deals in life is going, look, I want a deal that enables me and provides me with other outlets, 
but it doesn't rely on them doing their part for me to succeed, if that makes any sense. Makes total sense. Man, we could we could hit on that forever, but I know you're you busy man, probably gotta write the next uh you know, FGL hit or something. Or the that. next failure of my month. You never know. Or that's, that's but, a good point. But you got to get it out, right? Yeah. <laughs> but let's, uh, let's go through our, our last five questions. Full circle five. Number one, what book or record do you most commonly recommend to people? Man, you know, <laughs> one thing that I, every, I tell every young writer that I meet with, I ask if they read and if they don't, I tell them to read. And I wish I listened to that more. I'm a terrible reader. I like read maybe... <laughs> If I'm lucky, two books a year. It's terrible. I just read um, Shoe Dog. I'm a huge sneakerhead, yeah. but the Nike story has always been fascinating to me. So I, I just recently read that. I love Ready Player One because I'm an '80s nostalgia junkie. Um, you know, so I, I'm the worst person to ask for book recommendations. <laughs> Those are my two recent favorites. So Shoe Dog. Um, is shoe that, Dog's is that a pretty great. Um, it. It ends a little abruptly. Like I wish he kind of continued the story along, but basically it's pretty amazing that Nike is even alive today. It, it's just a crazy story. Yeah. Uh, Elon Musk's autobiography is great or biography. Um, music album wise. I mean, the, the albums that shaped me are Thriller, um, All Eyes on Me, The Chronic, Discovery, Daft Punk. Uh, Coldplay's first record. Yeah. I love Pink Floyd. Um, I love anything Smokey Robinson, Motown in general. Good. Yeah. yeah. Good recommendations. Thanks, buddy. So we've talked a little bit about this, but failure can turn into actually a great thing if it changes your behavior perspective on how you... Um, carry yourself forward. Sure. So in that sense, thinking back over your career, do you have a favorite failure moment? <laughs> a favorite failure moment. Ah, man, it's funny. As soon as you say failure, I think of multiple things come to mind. Without getting into like too many details and calling anyone out in name who I still am colleagues with, there's definitely situations that you get into as a young writer where if you're a remotely humble person and, and you can be arrogant a little bit too and still have some sense of some humility, no one really expects that you're going to write. You just don't go, I'm going to write a number one song. You can be confident and want to and you can dream about it, but you can never like it, you know, see yourself doing that. So if you're going to do situations, and it kind of goes back to what I said and, and, and learning some lessons and deals about, you know, anything you do in the music business or any business in life, make sure that the deals are structured to enable you to win, but you're not relying on someone else to do something for you to win because there's no brick walls in this business. There's no publishing deal that you're going to sign that's going to end your career or management deal, but there's definitely ones that will linger on, you know, whether that's expenses for your family or commissions or whatever else that, that will linger on for a while. So, you know, I think the two failures that come to mind are early, early on in my career, intern-wise, kind of speaking out of turn and sort of not feeling like I knew a subject and not really being totally aware of it. Research everything before you have an opinion on it. That goes for everything in life. I think if, you, if it's politics, I really don't care which way you swing, but the bottom line is 
you know, we are in a world of cliff note commenters. People know this much of a subject and then have an opinion about it. So I think that goes for anything in the music business. Um, and then the same thing goes for some of my worst business ventures, you know, have shaped me into what I hope is a be- better business person today. It's good. So before you dove fully into doing music, was there anything that held you back or kept you from just being all in on it? Fortunately, you know, I was one of the blessed ones. I think by 12 or 13, I knew I wanted to be in music and it wasn't, I never truly had the passion. Like I said, even, even DJing, there was never really that drive to be an artist. Even if when I was in bands, I'd never really wanted to be a famous artist. I wanted to work in, I remember going through high school counselor guidebooks and being like, oh, MTV internship. Because So I was pretty driven by that aspect and kind of knew what I wanted to do. Basically, I think that you sort of just sort of find your way as far as, you know, your passions for whatever hits you. But I, I always just wanted to do music. There was not this other force in my life of going, oh, maybe you could do that. Or I had pretty supportive parents too. I think my mom was nervous about it. My dad grew up playing in bar bands and she just basically, the outside world, I call it the civilian world, non-music industry people are called civilians in my book. <laughs> <laughs> the civilian world doesn't really have an understanding of music outside of what they're around. They still think we sell songs, you know? Um, so in her mind, it was, you're going to grow up playing in bars. So I think she was a little nervous, but they never were non-supportive. Mm-hmm. So I was fortunate enough to know that. And I knew I needed to get to a music industry town. Yeah. I liked Nashville. I didn't listen to country music, but I liked Nashville. Mm-hmm. And it seemed more accessible community-wise. I could go to a writer night or a show easier than I could in LA. Mm-hmm. And I liked the community. And now it's home. I mean, I would never, ever live anywhere else. It's good. Well, what is something that's working for you right now? Maybe as a writer or just as a, as a company, what are, what are some of the things that are working? The things that seem to work for me consistently from day one to today is being very careful. Um, one thing that can happen when you get a little bit of success is you start business writing and make sure that your calendar doesn't ever get too full of business rights. In other words, make sure that everyone you're writing with, you're, if you, you know, you got to like their hits. If just because they're a hit writer and you don't really gravitate to that music, you got to be careful that you don't just sort of slide into that because what got me into this was not chasing something. And that's, that sounds like one of those things that people say. It's kind of like when your grandparent or or dad gives you advice and you're like, yeah, 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 I got it. But you don't really understand that until you get caught up in the moment going, what what am I doing this for? Um, So I'm really careful to like, whether it's making tracks in advance or writing songs, I'm very careful not to vanilla something down because I think it's going to be too left of center or country something up because I think it's going to be too pop. Or I I try to let the town and, and someone else tell me something. Maybe the label will call me and say, hey, this needs to be more country or this needs to be less this or this needs to be more hip hop. But I think if you start doing that to yourself, then you're editing yourself, you know? So I got into country music by not writing country music. So why all of a sudden do I need to change what I do, you know? 
Um, so I love influences. I love kind of writing in different eras and, and styles of music. I think that we went through a weird, this is getting a little long-winded. I apologize, but oh, I think good. we went through a weird little era post blurred lines cases where you couldn't, you could no longer be influenced and talk about your influences. Mm. Meanwhile, all of our heroes from Mick Jagger to the Beatles to anyone you could ever name Elvis was influenced greatly and transparently so in many of these cases. I mean, can you imagine the Rolling Stones or Led Zeppelin without blues influences, you know, that they've mentioned? So I think that we had this slippery slope happen where all of a sudden you have to be feel ashamed or you have people chasing down situations because of influence. I mean, I feel like, you know, there's really truly nothing new that's ever made. There's unique twists on it. You know, it's good. So last question, if you woke up tomorrow and all of this stuff just disappeared, the business collapsed and you had to start from square one, but you have all the relationships and experience that you still have and you had to do, and you had, you could do anything you want. Where would you start? Any business? Could be music, could be anything. I mean, it just depends. I love fashion and clothes and shoes. So I've always been that would probably be my only other passion where I could see myself getting into some other game of life. I've always been intrigued by that world. If I was starting from zero in this business today, man, what an amazing community in this town now for writer producers. When I was coming up, there's a website called Gear Sluts. And I remember being like, how does Ryan Tedder get his snare drum sound? <laughs> and, you know, like the idea of the kid that we just signed down the hall, Brandon Day, I just gave him a hard drive full of samples. And it's not like I'm a Dr. Luke or a Ryan Tedder or anything to him. It's just, you know, I, can you imagine if we started off and there was someone that could like take you under their wing and help you out? Writer, producers, or track guys, or whatever you want to call them in this town were like, I remember explained an attorney I talked to didn't even understand why we were getting writing credit. You know, it was such a foreign subject seven years ago. And now it's like every publishing company's got multiple. So, you know, what an amazing time to start in, in this business and in this town. Um, These amazing writers come through. Some of our favorite pop writers are buying homes here, you know, and, and working and, and collaborating with us and vice versa. So I think I would um, focus on, I mean, if you can know what you know now, starting off from zero, you got to have a brand. If your tracks don't stand out, they just sound great. I'm not interested. I want to hear something unique. I want to hear a unique take on things, as does every single artist out there. If you don't have a unique approach that's still commercial, then, you know, it's it's hard to brand. I think you need to not be too cool for school, be open-minded. If you want to be a commercial songwriter, there is a difference yeah. between an artist songwriter and a commercial songwriter. But if you want to have commercial success, and I don't care if that means in trap or EDM or pop or country, if you want commercial success, you have to stay open-minded. You have to be your own quarterback, but always remember to listen to a team. Um and you kind of just, like I said, you have to figure out how do I stand out, you know? Yeah. And that you don't have to be the best guy in town. Sometimes that's just the hardest worker. Yeah, it's good. Is there anything you're working on right now that you'd like to share? Oh, man, all kinds of stuff. Um, Prado Rhythm House, 
our partners at Rock Nation have been awesome. We just, Carrie and Stephen Lee Olson and Carrie Barlow just got back from a Nick Jonas retreat with them. We've got um, four songs in the top 40 this week, which Amazing. is awesome for our small little roster. We've got Thomas Rhett's Life Changes and Lady Annabellum's Heartbreak. Uh, Carrie and I just co-wrote... Um, Summer Fever for Little Big Town, which I co-produced with Shane McNally. Yeah, so good. Working with uh, Billy Currington and all kinds of stuff, man. So we're just excited. We we jump genres. Uh, we're like ADD, genre-less <laughs> music creation. Yeah. So yeah, it's been fun. I love it, man. Well, thanks for being on the podcast. And uh, can people find you on social media? I'm just telemetry on Instagram. Um, we have a Rhythm House music Instagram page as well. And then hopefully you'll hear the songs on the radio. <laughs> yeah. Awesome, man. Well, thanks for being on the show. Thanks, buddy. Appreciate it. Hi, this is Seth Mosley, and you've been listening to the Made It in Music podcast. This show is produced by the Full Circle Music Company with editing help from Jordan Salamone. Next week on the Made It in Music podcast, we've got Wally from Total Access Way FM. So hilarious. This guy is brilliant, and I learned a ton about how radio works and uh, what it takes to make a career in it. Maybe a lot of you guys are interested in, you know, the other side of things. How do I get my songs played on the radio? But this is a fascinating conversation with one of the guys that works in it and has worked in it for years. So you're not going to want to miss that. Make sure you hit subscribe on iTunes or your select podcast service. If you haven't already, leave us a good rating and review, hit share, and we will see you next week on the show.